Dear Lord, make me just a nail upon the wall, fastened securely in its place. Then from this thing so common and so small, hang a bright picture of thy face. And we thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're discussing the philosophy, the philosophy of worship, the philosophy of worshiping the wonderful God whom we adore, and how our relationship to the Lord changes our relationship to those closest to us. The experience that I wish to share with you at this time has to do with Beth and with her husband, whose name we're going to call Dirk, because as she uh, shared with us the experience, I just about made up my mind that he was about as near to dirt as he could be. So I said, I'm going to call him Dirk. Before I share this experience with you, let us review a little bit concerning the philosophy of worship. We've told the story of a Mr. Duggar who was explaining the philosophy of law and how he was taught by that wise professor in college. He was taught how important the philosophy of law is and how my wife and I felt impressed that this is true with God's law. It is true with the center of his law, the Sabbath, the worship commandment, you see, that has to do with the worship day. And we noticed four particular expressions that we like to introduce the subject with. And the first is the word worship, which we dealt with in a previous broadcast. The word worship, as found in Revelation, the 14th chapter, verses 6 and 7, is used 57, 59 times, in fact, in the New Testament, coming from an original word that means to kiss the hand toward. So when the Bible says that we should worship our Creator, as we find we are commanded to, to do in the fourth commandment, uh, we are to have the relationship of love, which means that we're not bowing down to him purely on the basis of his being bigger than we are. No, not at all. We do stand in awe of this marvelous, majestic power. This is true. But far more than this, we kiss the hand toward because, as 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. So our worship of him is not the worship of a monster. It's the worship of a lover. It's the response in the human heart toward him who loved us with an everlasting love. It is our response toward the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus, the greatest lover this world has ever known. This is Sabbath worship. Closely associated with this is another term found in Exodus, the 31st chapter, verses 15 uh, to 17. Here the Lord says, because he made the heavens and the earth in six days and rested the seventh, so his people should do the same. And it says here, the Sabbath day is a sign between him and his people. The word sign has many synonyms, mark, trademark, banner, token. So the holy Sabbath day worship is a token between the Lord and his people. And you will, if you've studied at all the, the original word from which this word sign comes, you'll find that the sign is a significant token. This is the significance of worship, in other words. Sign being 
a part of the basis of significance. And the word sign, the word from which sign is translated, is also found in the Bible, translated miracle. Boiled down together, we summarize it this way. God's holy Sabbath day is a love miracle token of our relationship with him. It's based, this relationship is based on a miracle. Now, when we come to the next expression, we'll find what the basis is of this miracle. He says in the same text, namely Exodus 31, 15 to 17, he said, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel. The word Israel is definitely a spiritual term. And it draws its significance from the day that, uh, from that night that Jacob was pleading and wrestling with an angel, you remember, found in the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob was to face his brother who was coming to meet him. The brother had 400 soldiers, all armed. Jacob had no hope except in the Lord. And so he, he drew aside that night, pleading with God to come to his rescue. And someone appeared and wrestled with him until the day was breaking. And then it dawned over Jacob when the stranger touched his thigh and it was disjointed. It dawned over Jacob that it was the Lord. And then he cried out, Lord, I, I, I can't let you go except you bless me. And this great angel of the covenant replied, oh, I must go. The day is breaking. But he said, no, I, I can't let you go. In deep humility, he was pleading the mercy of God. And the Lord turned to him and said, what's your name? You see, Bible names had a special significance. When he was named Jacob, it meant that he was a deceiver, a supplanter, shrewd, crafty. He could pull sharp bargains. My name is Jacob. The Lord indicated immediately that he was going to give to him a new character. Your name from henceforth will be Israel. You're a prince. You have prevailed with God in this agony, this humble agony, this crying out, indicating your utter helplessness. Your name now will be Israel, a prevailer. A new experience is yours. You see, my friends, when we put the word worship, the word sign, and the word Israel together, we come up with this. The holy worship day is God's beautiful token of a love relationship that exists between him and his people based on the miracle of the change of heart that our creator imparts to the suppliant. No wonder we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, a new heart also will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. Don't you bless the Lord for that? I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. Oh, thank the Lord. On the basis of the miraculous power of our Creator to change the heart, the Holy Sabbath day is the miracle love token by which we kiss the hand toward our Lord. And he has so demonstrated and manifested his love toward us. He has so infilled us with this love that the overflow of this love extends to all of God's creatures. And that brings us to the fourth point. In, I, in, Psalm, 5, in Psalm, the 60th Psalm, in the fourth verse, we read these words. 
thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed, that it may be displayed because of the truth. God's banner, God's sign, God's token, God's love miracle day of worship, this text says, should be displayed. The character of our Lord should be displayed in our philosophy of worship. The word displayed comes from an original word, and be surprised now, I was astonished. I could hardly believe my eyes when I checked into it and found the original word from which the word displayed is comes means to show with self fleeing. In other words, as we display the philosophy of Sabbath worship, the way by which we display it is with self slipping in the background and showing forth to others with whom we come in contact this blessed revelation of the wonderful love of Jesus Christ. And what was his love? Who, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. My friends, this is the philosophy. This is a vital part of the philosophy of Sabbath worship. Self slips away into the discard, into the background. Out in front, there's, there's a magic dramatization of the character of our maker, Jesus Christ and his love. What is the love of Jesus? And now we want to share with you the story of Beth. We were conducting a series of meetings in her church. It was many years ago. And Beth was attending night after night. And we were endeavoring to present in our own feeble way, for who can really present the love of God as it should be? We're trying to present this beautiful love of Jesus Christ. This is an unselfish love. This is a love that, that goes out in love and respect to one's enemies. It blesses those who curse them. Night after night, we kept hammering on the love of God. Beth came to us early in the series with a problem. The problem was Dirk, her husband. She shared with us the experience for about a full hour in the pastor's study. And friends, I must admit that as Beth shared this experience, my whole soul arose in indignation against Dirk, for Dirk had left his little children, helpless children, destitute. And before she had gotten very far into the story, I felt that Dirk was a heel, quote unquote. You know, it's one thing for a man to leave his wife. It's another thing to go off with a so-called prostitute, but it's another thing still for him to let his children starve as far as he's concerned. Of course, he knew they wouldn't starve. He knew the state would come to their rescue. And so he did his little bit of rationalization and said, they're going to be taken care of. Why should I worry? She said, my husband went off with this very vile, voluptuous woman a thousand miles away, clear to New York, left us destitute, never, never called us, never sent a penny for the support of the family. I became the charge of the state. She said, and, and my children were too small for me to go to work. I, 
I didn't want to put them in the hands of a, a stranger babysitter, so I became the charge of the state. She said after several weeks had passed, my, my bell rang, my doorbell rang. I went to the door, a man introduced himself as an official of the state. I invited him in, he spread out before me a set of papers. He said, now we are pretty sure we know where Dirk is. We just need to have you initial these documents and that gives us the authority to extradite Dirk. We shall bring him back to his home state. We shall try him and we shall teach him a lesson that he'll never forget. We shall jail him and impose a fine, a heavy fine on him. Well, do you think I should do it? Yes, we think you should do it. You're now the charge of the state. This man should assume his financial obligations. And, uh, and Beth was convinced. Of course, she didn't feel too good anyway, you understand. So they found Dirk, they extradited him, they tried him, and they jailed him. And as she continued the story, she said, uh, she said, Dirk was in jail for three months. And then the officials came to him, they said, Dirk, on two conditions, we will release you to return to your home. One is that you will go home and be a responsible husband and father. Now, you know that was many years ago. I've never heard of anything like that taking place in these days. Have you? Oh, no. And the second is we're going to impose a fine on you and you'll be on your good behavior. So she said, Dirk has been back home. She said, he's, he's been back with us with me and with the children for uh, nearly three months now. Three months he was away, three months he's home. But she said, that brings me to the reason that I've come to see you, Pastor Kuhn. She said, I have noticed some restlessness on the part of Dirk for the last two or three weeks. And she said, and he has dropped a few hints that uh, he is going to leave again. And this time he will, quote, get lost, unquote. And she said, I know Dirk. And I know that unless something happens, Dirk will do it. And in spite of the fact that Dirk has been so unfaithful, I still love him. And the children need a daddy. And so I've come to you to ask for your help. Now, little did I realize, friends, as she came, what her purpose was in coming. Her purpose in coming was to, uh, to persuade me to visit Dirk. But the Lord helped it never to penetrate my mind. And in addition to that, I had learned that there's some wonderful things that the faithful companion can do under the Lord that will lead the unfaithful one to the Lord. For the one who is who is not faithful, doesn't know the love of the Lord. And they must have a dramatization of his love from somebody, for we love him because he first loved us. And when a person sees in another individual, particularly those nearest to him, when he sees a tender, compassionate love that forgives, that is long-suffering, that under abuse replies and responds only in love, that is a makes a tremendous impact on the individual. So I said, yes, I can help you. 
She said, but pastor, may I ask you this? Do you believe that the help that you're ready to give me means that Dirk won't leave me? That he won't leave the children again? Uh, are you pretty sure of this? Well, you know, I couldn't promise her that that would happen. But I did say this, and I felt strongly impressed by the Holy Spirit to say it. I said, Beth, naturally, I can't promise that he won't leave you, no matter how kind you are, no matter how sweet you are. But I can tell you that on the authority of the Word of God and on the authority of past experiences, the overwhelming odds are that even if he leaves, he will return. Oh, she said, I'm so glad. Thank you. And now, now, what do you suggest? And you know, my friends, for, for years, it never dawned over me that she had come with the one specific thing in mind that I would go to Dirk and I would shape up Dirk and I would reform Dirk and I would give Dirk a new heart. I would give Dirk a new attitude, which only God can give in the first place. And in the second place, she was the one that was in the home who could most perfectly present this. Dirk and I had had no misunderstanding. Naturally, I'd be sweet to him. He's a perfect stranger to me. He'd never done anything wrong to me. So how could my visiting him do for him what her responses could do under the abuse, you see, under the sensuality, under his awful situation of wickedness? So the Lord impressed me just somehow not to understand that that is what she'd come for. I said, yes, we have five texts of Scripture. I said, now the first one is this. And you know, isn't it wonderful how if we keep close to the Lord, he will give us counsel to share with others that is far wiser than we ourselves understand. And this is what the Lord was doing through me. The counsel came from the Lord. It didn't come from me because God knew what she needed far more than I did. And I was impressed right at the occasion. I hadn't used these five texts for I don't know how long with anybody. And the first text I said, Beth, is this, James 5, 16. It says, confess your faults one to another. That means one will confess her faults to her husband, hoping then in return that he will, but not insisting or even insinuating that he will. But he will learn humility through seeing her, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So you'll go home and confess the faults that you've had. And you know, then I just got a little picture of what Dirk had been living with. She just became a different person. She said, Pastor, you mean that I, I'm, apolog I'm to apologize to him? She said, Pastor, don't you realize I've been faithful to him. I've never been unfaithful. I've never been untrue. This man left me. He went 1,500 miles away. He went to New York City. He lived with this woman who is known to be a house homebreaker. Now, I'm to apologize to him. And I tried as best as I could, friends, to kindly suggest, but you may have made some mistakes. Perhaps you've been too sharp. Little did I dream how sharp she had been until after the whole interview was ended and she went on her way, the two pastors came quickly into the studio and they said, Pastor, we're sorry we didn't tip you off before, the idea. We hope you didn't side with her against Dirk. They said, 
that little woman can be quite sharp. I said, no. I said, my indignation was aroused against him. But thank the Lord, the Lord kept me from siding with her against him. I gave her the text to go and apologize. Oh, they said, we are so relieved. So I had said to her, so you'll go and you'll apologize. And you'll tell him you're sorry, wherein you have been a little severe, perhaps a little sarcastic, or what have you. And I thought, friends, that she accepted it. So then I went on to the next. So I said, step number two will be this. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, 16. It says, speaking of Jesus, who wants to live in our lives, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This means that as Jesus makes his abode in your life, you'll have a sweet mouth. You'll not utter sharp things. You'll not retaliate, the idea. You'll be sweet and lovely. So he can capture a picture of the love of Jesus. And he will want to have that kind of an experience. Again, poor Beth, bless her heart. I could see that she was, she was almost revulsed with this, with this suggestion. She said, but pastor, can't I somehow explain to you that I've been kind to him? He is the one that has been untrue. I said, yes, this is true. But how in the world, I don't know how I said it, but this was the thought, how in the world can this man capture a picture of Jesus' love when the Lord says we love him because we first observe his love? How can he capture the love of God unless he witnesses this love of God through you, Beth? Oh, yes, she said, okay. Then I went on to the next. I gave her five texts. I'm only going to share three with you, and I'll tell you why. I've forgotten the last two. The next text I gave her was this, and friends, it was, quote, a knockout, unquote. It was Ephesians 5:33. Let the wife see that she reverence her husband. When I read that, it put Beth in an awful frustrated mood. She repeated again something like this, but pastor, you mean for me to reverence him? You don't seem to understand what I've been trying to share with you. The man ran off and left me. The children could starve for all, I, all he cared. I said, I know it. But the thought is, how in the world can he capture a picture of the love of Jesus unless he captures it through you? Finally, she ascended, and we prayed, and she went on her way, and I thought, oh, praise the Lord. That's going to be a new home. She came the next night, the same night to the meeting, and the moment I was through speaking, she was there at the altar. Pastor, would you go and visit my husband? And the Lord helped me. You know, I would have naturally said, yes, I'll go immediately. The Lord helped me to say, no, that's your assignment. And she went away sorrowfully. The next night, I think it was, she returned. The moment I was still preaching, Pastor, I understand there's a Bible instructor in the church, a lady. Would it be all right if she went over and visited my husband? And I would naturally have said yes. And the Lord said, don't say yes. I said, no, Beth, this is your assignment. She went away sorrowfully. She attended the 17-day series, was almost ending. Finally, just near the close, she stepped to the altar, and her face was beaming. Pastor, Pastor, I have some wonderful news for you. I said, tell me, tell me. She said, do you know I couldn't do a thing that I'd suggested and I'd promised to do? 
Day after day passed, and I carried that little chip on my shoulder. I had that little sharp tongue that I'd had before, the little sarcastic attitude, the retaliatory spirit. And she said, then one morning, just a few days ago, my husband announced when he was leaving for work, when I come home tonight, I'm going. She said, I realized I'd done nothing. I went, I rushed in the bedroom, I flung myself on the bed, I cried out to God. She cried out as did Jacob. Oh, Lord, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I can't do anything you've told me to do. Lord, make me a new creature. And she said, and the Lord completely changed my thinking. I got up from my knees, I went to the closet, I took out his suits, I sponged and pressed them, I took out his shirts, I laundered them up as they'd never known a laundry, laundry in all their lives. She, I think she even said she took his shoes out and brushed and, and polished them. She said, when he came home, he said, what are these for? She said, I said, you're on a long trip, you'll need them. She said, he saw in my face and in my countenance something that changed him. He started on the trip, made about 500, 400, well, five-hour trip. The thought of what a wonderful wife absorbed his thinking. He turned right around and came back home, and he said to her, listen, I'm only going to be here two or three days. I'm going again. During those two or three days, friends, he saw in her countenance, in her voice, in every action, he saw Jesus Christ, the maker who makes new hearts and new lives. She said, I went home last night with the children. I went in the driveway. She said, there the house was lighted up. I rushed in the house. We're lost in each other's arms. We're sweethearts again. Pastor, it's wonderful. Friends, this is the philosophy of worship. For the love of Jesus to flow through to us, through us to those who do not deserve it. Let's ask him to make that part of our life. Thank you, Lord. You are doing it as we reach out in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. And now for our questions and answers. But first shall we seek the wisdom from the Lord. Dear Lord, you've promised in James chapter 1, verse 5, that if any of us lacks wisdom, we may ask of you, and you will give us this wisdom. We realize also that you've told us in Isaiah 42, 16, that you'll guide us in a way we don't expect. So we claim the promise of the Lord that you will help us to open our hearts to your way when it seems to contradict our way. We believe your promise and thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for the first question. Our first questioner writes, Pastor Kuhn, in your messages through the years, you emphasize how we should respect the freedom of choice of others. Now here's my question. Suppose a mother-in-law or a father-in-law chooses to interfere with my own marriage. Am I to let them do so? Signed, Confused. Well, bless your heart. You see, their choice ends where your choice begins. When I was a, a young lad back home, I heard someone telling about the freedom of choice, and they told about a man who was going down the street with a big long ladder, and they said as he rounded uh, the bend or turned up another street, his ladder hit somebody's nose. And the man whose nose had been hit said, Hey, man, there, listen, you hit me. And the man with the ladder said, I want you to understand I'm in a free country. 
But the man whose nose he hit said, listen, your freedom ends where my nose begins. <laughs> so, so the freedom of the father and mother-in-law ends where the freedom of the newlyweds or the new home begins. God's immutable, eternal, impeccable, never-failing word declares this. It says in, in, in Ephesians 5, 30 and 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So fathers and mothers-in-law have no right to choose to disobey God to the expense of, of somebody else's choice. So you can just be real kind and sweet, and maybe this is what the Lord will impress you to do. Isaiah 30, 15. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. One of the most wonderful rebukes to a father or mother-in-law or some friend who tries to impose on our choice is total silence. Not even discuss it. Just smile and be quiet. Is there another question? This questioner says, <clears throat> I've heard you read somewhere, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 3, in which you say that a wife should be submissive to her non-Christian husband. When he makes demands that definitely disobey God and does things his way, am I to submit to these demands? No. No, the Bible says, take for instance, Acts 5.29. It says we must obey God rather than man. And also in the same, in the same, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, before it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, it says, submitting one to another. So when it comes to the question of, of conscience, when it comes to the question of obeying God or a human being, the Bible is very clear on this. But the thing that is very important, friends, extremely important, is this. And I have noticed this through the years. Let us take the example of a husband who, who was uh, telling his wife what to do, and, and, he, and he raised an issue. I asked her if before this religious issue was raised in which her judgment was right. But if before this issue was raised, what had been her relationship to her husband? Had it been one of sweet submission? Or had she sort of forgotten the chain of command in the home? And I have learned that again and again, many men, non-Christian men, or men of another faith, will permit an issue to be raised because the general deportment of the wife has been one contrary to submission. She's picked on him. She's taken, taken the reins out of his hands. She has neglected. She's ignored the chain of command in the home. If she would like when, when religious conscience is involved to have the privilege of doing right without being persecuted, let her at all other times be so happy, so winsome, so wholesome, so submissive, that when the issue uh, does project itself, she will not appear to be wanting her way, but rather he will see that it's a matter of conscience. That's 1 Peter 3, 1 to 3, and then on through to the seventh verse. Here's a question. I have a wife who is uh, continually interrupting me in company. If I say we had six eggs, she's liable to say, no, it was a half a dozen. After she interrupts me 
about six times, I feel like I'm about a half a dozen inches tall. It sounds humorous, maybe, but it's very embarrassing. What should I do? This is a very, very common problem in conversation. First of all, you would claim a promise for the Lord's wisdom. This is found in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. So you'll ask the Lord to give you wisdom. As you ask him to give you the wisdom, and as he gives you this wisdom, remember this, every mind reacts a little different, a little differently from another mind. The mind of this person who interrupted, what might be the solution to one individual might not be the solution to another at all. For instance, we have found that in some cases, if the person that was interrupted were to stop dead in his tracks in his speech, so to speak, and would turn to the partner and say, uh, maybe you'd like to share the rest of this. This might greatly embarrass that partner. Another partner, however, under those circumstances would go right ahead and, and talk and not appear embarrassed. With, uh, in another case, you would do what the Bible says in Proverbs 25, verse 9. It says, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself and discover not the secret to another. You see, if we were to, to turn to the person who interrupts and say, well, uh, maybe you'd like to do it, it might embarrass the person who interrupted unduly, you see. So it, in this case, if you know your partner that well, you might wait until you have the sitting down method of making decisions, which we've presented many times in the past. And as you sit down alone where no one else is listening, you might with a little smile and without uh, bearing down on the problem, say, you know, I've made some mistakes. When you are talking, as we go out visiting, I have made a mistake. I have interrupted. Will you forgive me when I have interrupted? Maybe each of us has. What would you think if we both would just try to ask the Lord to give us wisdom, not to interrupt each other? It kind of breaks our chain of thought. Now, with this humility as you present this, it'll be much easier for the partner to accept it. My uh, teenage girl will not do anything I command her to do. One friend says I should put her out of the house and make her fend for herself. Another says she should be physically flogged. What should I do? Sometimes I just ignore it. First of all, you'd ask the Lord for wisdom. James 1, 5 or Psalm 25, verse 9, and notice what Psalm 25, verse 9 says. It says, the meek he will guide in judgment. The meek he will teach his way. Evidently, this, this daughter at this point has become antagonistic to the commands. You'd ask the Lord in meekness to teach you whether your commands have been irritatedly given. Maybe you've shouted them sometimes. Maybe you've belittled her with these commands, you see. In other words, the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever we sow, we'll reap. If we have not respected our children, the reaping time comes, and they may not respect us, you see. So the Lord says in 1 Peter 2, 17, honor all, all men, that means honor everybody, 
our little children from the time they're little tots, though we do demand obedience, and though there is such a thing as strict discipline, we should have such a respect for them that as they grow up, it'll be the natural response on their part to respect us because we've respected them. They will love us because we have loved them. They'll be kind to us because we've been kind to them. Do you see? So, no, by no means would you put the child out. We find no place in the Bible where Jesus our Lord has ever said to close a door against a child. On the other hand, there will be times when we'll have to actually make clear to them that there are laws. There are a few rules in the home that must be obeyed. But however, bear this in mind, friends, and it's very important. When we come to the point where we explain to them that there are rules, a few rules that must be obeyed, we must be extremely careful to present this with the attitude of humility. For instance, James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another. You see, whenever we correct another, if we'll correct that person in the attitude of humility, showing a respect for this individual, it'll be much easier for this individual to keep the defenses down. But if we tower over them and take the attitude that I'm right and you've been wrong all the time and now I'm going to insist that, that my rightness be respected, you see, the heart will be full of antagonism. So you might say something like this to the daughter after you've prayed a great deal and ask God to fill you with a meekness. You might say, honey, calling her to one side, we'd like to have a little chat together. Maybe you'd have a little word of prayer first. And if you do pray with her, be careful how you pray. Don't say, now, Lord, help me to correct my daughter and straighten her out. Oh, no, no. Lord, as I talk to my daughter Susan, if that's her name, Forgive me, Lord, wherein I've been unkind. Forgive me wherein I've been irritated. Lord, forgive me where I've not represented Jesus. And as I share with Sharon some of the things that are in my mind, help her to forgive me as I sincerely want you to, and I want her to. Thank you, Lord, for hearing me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Sharon, or Susie, or Mary, or whoever it might be, you know, I'm awfully sorry. I've lost my temper again and again. I've made loud demands and all of this, and I'm sorry. But I have something that I'd like to share with you. I must, under the Lord, have a few rules, and they must be obeyed. They must be rules of the home, otherwise God will hold me accountable. And in spite of the mistakes that I've made, I would like to suggest this that as I make the rules few, and as I try to represent the Spirit of Jesus, that these rules, I believe that you'll be willing to obey them. Now you bring in faith, see? You've already shown uh, humility by, by apologizing. Now you'll talk faith. I believe, Susie, or I believe, Mary, or whoever you talk to, I believe that when I take the right attitude toward you, I believe that you'll want to cooperate. I really believe it. And then you may mention some of the good qualities that she has, you see. This builds her hope. So you'll, you'll use faith and you'll speak your hope in her. You'll not belittle her. That's a law of humility, you see. And as you smile a little, there's a law of love. And then you'll say, what would you think that we should do in our home, Susie? 
Now, there's a law of choice. What would you think that we should do? And Susie then can, can speak her mind. So you're listening. One of the most wonderful laws of communication is the law of choice and love which will listen. And then as she speaks her mind, don't hurry her. Don't feel you've got to out-talk her, you see. Listen attentively. And you may say, oh, Susie, I think you've got a point there. Even though you don't feel that all that she said, you see, is worthy, if anything she said is worthy, I believe you have a point there. I think we ought to give study to that in prayer. Then there's something that she's brought out that might not be worthy. So you'd say, and what would you think of this? In harmony with so-and-so that you've mentioned, what would you think of this? I don't want to be unfair, Susie. I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to be a dictator, a monster. I want to be fair. But the Lord will hold us all accountable for certain rules. And then if Susie comes along and, and, and agrees, fine. If she's a little hesitant, you don't have to decide on all of it at the first conversation. You can say, why don't we think it over, Susie? And let's pray about it. And let's chat again. Give me some of your thoughts. I'll share you, with you my thoughts. I have found this, friend, that 95% of teenagers, when they're approached this way, will go the second mile, as they do it, to cooperate when they see daddy and mother going the second mile to cooperate. You see, home communication is not a 50-50 deal. It's 100% yielding as far as I can in respect to the other. Then they will go beyond the 50% in cooperating. Pray a lot about it. Don't feel that it's all got to be settled the first minute or the first conversation. This way, you're enlisting her cooperation. You're enlisting her sympathy, you see. You're giving her time to think and become unemotional because at the first visit, she surely thinks you're about ready to whack her over the head, you see. And God will give you that wisdom. Here's a problem that <clears throat> must be shared by thousands of people. When I go to church, I become very lonesome as no one speaks to me. They don't even seem to know I'm there. Signed, Lonesome and Ignored. Bless your heart. I believe you're 100% right. May we make a suggestion. It's based on God's Word. As you notice, all of our counseling is based on His Word. In the book of Proverbs, it says, He that hath friends must show himself friendly. Sometimes when we're lonesome, let me give you a little picture. Sometimes when we're sitting in church and we appear lonesome, we do not realize that it comes through to somebody else as though we wanted to be let alone. You see, the very, the very countenance of a lonesome person can come through to somebody else this way. Don't you talk to me. Don't you shake my hand. I don't want anybody to talk to me. So in order to, to give them a different picture, we'll smile. Then the next step you'll take, and this works wonders, you'll, you'll very sweetly, and don't try to overdo it, don't be overly enthusiastic, shake their hand, how are you today? And friend, you'll be amazed because the individuals generally get the impression that the lonesome person is really an antagonistic person. 
They get the impression that the lonesome person just wants to be let alone and don't you touch me and don't you speak to me. Now, when you smile and you reach over your hand and you say, how are you today? Try it and report back. I like my children to be very reverent in church, but they don't sit quietly. They want to write the whole time the minister is preaching. How can I solve this problem? You see, if, if a little child is fully diagnosed, we will realize that the child's attention span is very short. And a good way for us to be sympathetic with these children is to realize that the attention span of us adults in church is often quite short, too. Have you ever noticed how your mind actually wanders while the minister's preaching? Imagine, then, a little child whose attention span is inches, you see, in length. Now, this little child, if you let the little child draw some pictures, wonderful. You may also follow this Bible principle of, of Romans 12, 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, you might say to the little child, if the child is old enough to write, how would you like to write? Uh, how many times the minister mentions the name Jesus? Would you like to do that? Or with another child, you might say, uh, how would you like to write down a text of Scripture? that the minister mentions, and if the child is old enough, and, and let's take our Bibles to church. And you can look at this text of Scripture, and when we get through the meeting and go home and eat our, our Sabbath lunch, let's see if we can remember which text of Scripture we like the best this morning. There are many ways by which we can, we can encourage this child to be writing. Instead of saying, don't write, you're in church. Instead of saying, sit up, you're in church, let's encourage them to do the thing that they want to do and help them to do it in the way that, that blends with the service. And then they'll fall in love with the service. There's much more on that. And if you have another question, be free to put it in. This uh, inquirer says, when the holy Sabbath day comes, I like to go out on the hills with my children but my aunt says it is sinful to even go to parks instead of church, even if my family sings and reads the Bible and prays. Is she right or am I? Well, you know, in our answering questions, we don't like to deal with this question, who is right? Actually, we're all wrong. The Bible says in Romans 3:23, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we know what you mean. You mean, is her suggestion proper or is yours? The Bible would indicate there's something somewhere between the two. And this is found in Isaiah, the 58th chapter and the 13th verse. And this says, call the Sabbath a delight. So the Lord wants us to be happy. The holy of the Lord. So he wants us to have a joy, a delightful joy, but it's a different kind of joy on the Sabbath from that in which we would engage through the week, necessarily. Now, any time in the week, we can go beside a lake and enjoy it. We can also enjoy the same lake on the Sabbath. Any time in the week that we have time, we can go to a park and enjoy it. We can enjoy the same park on the Sabbath. The question is, 
to what extent will our going to this park or up in the mountains preclude our listening to God's word, you see? And to what extent, if we make it a habit of going out to these places on the Sabbath, would it bring our children to a habit of not attending church services? So there's a proper balance, you see. What would you think of this? What would you think of going to church the Sabbath morning, enjoying its services, joining in its songs of praise, having your children write texts, as we mentioned before, and participating, and then, and then in the afternoon and on a Sunday, go to these places, do you see, that you can go to on the Sabbath, and you'll, of course, extend it on Sunday. Why not do this? Now, it doesn't mean that we can never, never, never take a Sabbath morning out in a park, but you'll be happy to know, friends, that there are many groups now that actually do go out on a weekend, and they have a church service right out there. They have a Sabbath school. They have a, a preaching service. They have a wonderful service there. But you can see readily what it would mean if it became a habit of going away from the church service, your home church service, more than you attend. May the Lord give you the wisdom and guidance that he's promised he said, the meek he will guide in judgment. The meek he will teach his way. <clears throat> this is a rather long question, but uh, for the sake of time, why don't I try to paraphrase it? All right. Here's a person who heard you tell a story about a woman who was addicted to television and soap operas and so forth. And uh, in the story, she prayed and asked God to take away the temptation and the desire to watch these programs. And uh, you said that the Lord completely took the, that all the desire away from her. This questioner wonders why when they pray for the same thing, certain lustful desires to be gone, uh, the lustful desires are still there. Oh, my, that's a good question. So happy you turned that in. We have found that in various habits in which people have become enmeshed and have become victims, that there are many different ways by which the Lord brings them deliverance. We found individuals who smoke or drink, or, as in the case of this lady that you referred to, some have never even desired these things again. This is the minority. In the majority of cases, there is still a temptation. But in this case, the Lord has given particular and specific promises let me cite two or three that will help you. I must say that in my own life, certain little habits that I've had, God has not done for me what he did for that lady. I believe that he did it for this lady because she was so completely helpless that he saw that she could not even face the temptation if it continued. And you see, in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verses 11 to 13, he said, there's no temptation taken you but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This lady evidently was not able to bear any temptation along that line at that specific point. So God answered her prayer that way. Now, with others, he sees that we can endure the temptation but we'll claim a promise like the one I just quoted 
We'll claim Philippians 2.13. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Many times in my own life, I've said something like this. Dear Lord, here's a temptation that comes to me. I know that I cannot gain the victory. You've already gained the victory. I choose to accept the victory that you've already gained. My part is to choose. I accept your power and I accept your victory. And then I may quote 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be unto God that giveth me the victory. Lord, I thank you. You are giving Glenn Coon victory. And I'm believing it with all my heart. And then I keep telling him that I thank him for this victory. And I found this. The more you express your faith in God, the more I express my faith in God, the more it goes all through our beings. Expression deepens impression. That's why Jesus continually would get from people a, a statement of faith. Do you believe I can do this to you? To you? He said, yes, I believe. You see, before the walls of Jericho fell, his people would say, victory is ours. The walls are going to fall. This has been one of the measures by which God gives us victory. Expression deepens impression, and God respects our expression of faith as faith itself. Is there still one more question? All right, I think our time is up for this particular season. Why don't we now ask God to bless each questioner and all who view this program that the Holy Spirit will teach us the wisdom and impart the wisdom and the strength that we need, shall we pray? Dear Lord in heaven, you've promised this wisdom You've promised this strength. You've promised this victory. So we come in simple childlike faith, thanking you that now we are receiving through the merits of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cleanses us and the power of Jesus fills us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.